there are all kinds of stories that have been told all this time, but that the gatekeepers in the publishing industry have not brought into the wider market. Greetings, salutations, felicitations, other unnecessary greetings, and hello from the feminist present. I am slash we are the podcast that uses the gift of feminism to figure out what the hell is going on right now. I am Laura Good, and I'm sitting here alone in my house because my colleague, the good Dr. Adrian Daub, is in Germany, the land of his birth, and he is having a really good time there, and I didn't think he needed to record a podcast nine hours ahead. Have you ever tried to coordinate a podcast recording from different countries? It's not logistically simple. So you're about to hear an interview with a phenomenal author who I was so excited to talk to. Her name is Wauhini Wara, and her book is The Immortal King Rao. It just came out in May. It is her first novel. It is her debut novel, and what a debut it is. Wauhini is a friend of mine, and I was partially excited to talk about her book because it's fabulous, and I was partially excited to talk about her book because she's a Stanford alum and she makes us all look good. So it was like a total pleasure. I could not recommend this book more. It, it, I mean, you'll hear me tell Wauhini in the interview, like I ignored my children near a body of water. This book was so good. So as you're planning your summer reading list, and I hope you are, and I also hope you're like taking some vacations. Have you noticed that everyone is not okay? Like people are distinctly not okay. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but all just to say, Summer reading is very important. It is important for your health. It is important for your rest and restoration. And as you do it, I recommend The Immortal King Rao by Wahini Wara, among other books. You know, if you're making a summer reading list, you can just review the Feminist Presence recent archives. All the books that we talk about are amazing. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about them. And uh, we're nerds for books. It's kind of our sweet spot. So we're on a little bit of a summer break here at the Feminist Present. You know, academia just sort of like disintegrates like sugar and water in the summer. Like everybody pretends they're still working, but they're like hiding. And what they mean by hiding is like they're reading books by the lake instead of at their desk, which is what I'm going to be doing next week. So I hope that you are doing that. Our releases will probably not be as regular this summer as they are in, I don't know, have they ever been regular? They've never been regular. We're not into that. Um, So we will continue being just as Rococo and quirky as we've always been. We hope you will do the same. Please enjoy this interview between me, Laura, and Wahini Wara, and uh, check back in again soon. Thanks for joining us. Wauhini, oh my god, what a fucking journey I had with this book. You know, just to start on a super, like, professional and appropriate note, like, this book passed... I would say my primary test for like an immersive novel, which is, did it make me ignore my children? And I'm here to tell you, it made me ignore my children on a beach, like in a body of water. That's how good this book was. I am so flattered to hear that. This book made me ignore my child for the 13 years of writing it. So that's a question I have for you as well. (laughs) Yeah. He was born like what? What is that? Five years into the writing of it. So Really, oh, it was wow. seven years of ignoring my child. 
Wow. Okay. We're definitely going to return to that. And just for anyone who's like going to call children and family services on me, like my husband was also at the beach and he's a very responsible parent. (laughs) So like that actually takes me perfectly to the question I had for you, which is like, I'm a total slut for acknowledgements pages and yours was an embarrassment of riches. And the first line is this book took me 12 years to write. So like in as much or as little detail as you think is appropriate, can you take us through that process? Like that, yes. that itself is an epic journey. Yeah. So I, the, the sort of first germ of the idea for the book was in January of 2009. Wow. I was in graduate school and I was on a leave of absence from my day job at the wall street journal where I was working as a tech reporter I had been writing stories. And in January of 2009, I was on this trip with my dad and his wife and we were on a train in Peru And he was like teasing me about only writing short stories and was like, you need to write a novel. Like people only read novels. And I was like, all right, dad, give me an idea then. Like every parent of a writer ever. Could you just write a novel and become a bestseller really quick? Thank you. So true. So true. (laughs) Um, So I was like, all right, dad, give me an idea. And so he gave me some bad ideas. And then he was like, well, why don't you write about our family coconut grove in India? Like, there's a ton of great stories there. And there are. Like, my dad grew up on this family coconut grove. My dad is is Dalit. So part of the community in India that is oppressed by the caste system. And so there was a ton of great family history to, to mine. And so I was like, oh, yeah, that is a great starting point for a book. And then at the same time, I had just come off, you know, three years of three, four years of working as a tech reporter in San Francisco at this time when like Facebook had just started and Google had just gone public. And so like that world was sort of swirling around in my mind also. And so Mm -hmm. those two things sort of became the genesis of the book in 2009. And then over time, the book changed a lot. Like at first I had this sort of narrative voice, but I didn't know who it belonged to. It was just like this voice telling the story of um, King Rao growing up on this coconut grove in India and then moving to the U.S. in the 1970s and starting a tech company. I had this voice because I didn't feel like I had the proper sort of like authorial authority to tell like the story of King Rao in the first person, for example, to try to embody him as a writer. Because even though I'm Indian American and I'm Dalit and my family's from this coconut grove. I never grew up there. I didn't grow up there in the 1950s. Like I'm female. There are all these things that made my, my and you're not a dude. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and so I was like, all right, I'll, I'll make up this other voice. And then it took me a long time to figure out what that voice was and who it belonged to. Um, it was many years in that, like, I actually came up with Athena, the narrator of the book as an actual sort of individual human character. Fascinating. And so, yeah, it was like a, a very, very amorphous thing that that sort of changed with the writing over the years. I'm trying to come up with a summary of the novel that would be sort of digestible to listeners who have not had the pleasure of reading it. And what I'm seeing in my head is a very sort of like Westworld style, multiple timelines, multiple threads. So so like, I'm going to try to summarize it and you please jump in with like what I inevitably fuck up. So timeline number one is like King Rao growing up in the Coconut Grove post partition in the early 50s. Timeline two is King Rao migrating to America, meeting his white American wife, Margaret, and starting this tech company that like eventually takes over the world. Timeline three, we come to learn, is his somewhat genetically engineered daughter, Athena, coming sort of like, I don't even know, coming to sort of finish the cycle of all of this in a way. And to me, like those timelines are obviously interlinked by family, but they also feel incredibly conceptually interlinked. So like, how do you see the conceptual interlinking of these like incredibly absorbing and complex timelines? 
First of all, I'm very impressed with your synopsis of the book and need to. Oh, good. I really, I really did own. read it and liked it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just like that your ability to say succinctly what it even is is something that I'm still grappling with. Like, I still need to figure out how to do. So it's a big book. I can see how that would be a struggle. Yes. Yeah. Um, but. It's funny, you know, when I said I had created this voice and I didn't know what it was, I did know early on that this voice would be some kind of invention of King Rouse. Like he sort of invented a technology that allows some other right. consciousness to tell his story. But I didn't know what that consciousness was, which I raise only to say that when I figured out that King Rao brought someone, some consciousness into into being who could tell his story that's when it sort of clicked for me that there are all right. these conceptual inner linkages as well, which is to say at first I was just like telling a story, you know? Um, and then as I realized that the story begins on a coconut grove in the 1950s and then ends in some point in the near future in which the world has sort of been transformed and destroyed by global capitalism, I started to understand that the book itself, like the book as a whole, is essentially a book about global capitalism and the relationship between global capitalism and like just our humanity, which for me has a lot to do with like how we fit into our communities, right? So like, even though it's a kind of book about a big idea, for me, like the way I think about that big idea, that particular big idea, it feels like the way in which it manifests, like the way that global capitalism has affected us is very intimate. And so I wanted to write this sort of like book where a lot of what happens happens in somewhat domestic spheres. The coconut. Yes. Right. <laughs> I, so like, I just want to hear you talk about the coconut because like, I cannot imagine a, a richer and more like a farther reaching central met. Like, what is the coconut to you? Talk about the coconut. Mm. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, there's so much to say about about coconuts. So in the novel, King Rao, like my dad, grows up on this family farm that is in the business of growing coconuts and harvesting them and then selling their byproducts. Like one interesting thing about the coconut as a item is historically coconuts were used like the coconut tree was used um, very sustainably, you know, like you could use all parts of the coconut Every tree. Every part take, of it, yeah. Yeah, you could like take its trunk apart and turn it into a boat. Um, you could use like the fibers on the outside of a coconut shell to make clothing or to thatch a roof. And then of course there's like the meat inside, which you could eat as is, but you could also dry it and sell it as coconut meat. You know, in the middle part of the 20th century, just after India had gained independence and just after partition, it was a time when it was kind of in vogue for these countries that were just gaining independence to figure out like what they had, what their resources had that they had on their own and how they could benefit from those resources. Right. And so in India, the coconut became a kind of metaphor for independence, right? Like a metaphor for self-sufficiency. And that's all this family was doing at first. Like at first there was this coconut grove and they were harvesting coconuts and selling those coconuts or selling the coconut meat. But then over the course of the 20th century, as globalization started to take place and there was more competition from other parts of India, from outside of India, all of a sudden this coconut family, farming family, the one in my book and coconut farming families in general in India had to compete in a global economy. And so right. like the family in my book, for example, 
has to figure out how to turn their sort of like sustainable coconut farming, local coconut farming business into like something more than that. And so they start buying coconuts from other farms and becoming more of like a processor of coconuts, right? Um, in the way that a lot of business, family family businesses changed, not just in India, but, but everywhere. And then coconut becomes the name of the computer company that King starts when he moves to the US in the 1970s. Right. And I think for him, it's in part like a gesture toward this thing that was really meaningful. And then also it's a reflection of the fact that he and Margie, his wife and co-founder, hope that computers will become ubiquitous and will become used by everyone and will become very necessary in our lives the way historically coconuts were in his homeland. So the coconut is sort of operating on a lot of different levels in the book. Oh my God. It was, ugh, it's, it's still blowing my mind. I mean, exactly the process that you were just describing of watching this family farm go from a sort of simple transaction of like selling coconuts or selling coconut meat to like, oh wait, we can extract oil from this. Oh wait, we can sort of like lease other families land for this. Oh wait, we can become like at a capitalist empire essentially. And then that's exactly the process yeah. that takes place on the other side of the ocean too. It's fascinating and like so deftly woven. How do you learn so much about coconuts? Like, tell me, what was the research process of this like? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, my dad grew up on a coconut grove in India. And when I was right. young, we would go back, but that coconut grove is still there and our family members still live there. And so every time we would visit, oh, wow. when I was growing up, we would go back and visit the coconut grove and, you know, and stay there and eat there with relatives and it would be like a big gathering place for the whole extended family because that that land is still co-owned by the whole family. And so I had this sort of like inborn interest in that place and like a kind of like natural understanding mm -hmm. of it, you know, um, but not in like any intimate way, right? It was a place that I visited growing up. And so what I did after I started the book was in the summer of 2010, I traveled to India and spent some time again there. And this time I brought my, I, I traveled with an uncle and a cousin and they helped me like just find all these family members to have conversations with and record them. And, and so I asked questions about coconuts. I also asked questions just about the business and about, mm -hmm. about the sort of social structures at the time and caste and gender and um, education and all these different things, local politics that mm -hmm. I had only a vague understanding of. And I talked to people, you know, I talked to like a great uncle I also talked to cousins of mine. So I got this sort of like multi-generational sense of what it was like to be a coconut, a Dalit coconut farming family right. at, at the time. And then I also went to visit this place called the Coconut Research Station in one of the sort of bigger towns nearby. And I talked to one of the directors of that place and was just like asking questions about the sort of like history of coconuts in that region over time. I love this image of you showing up at like the Coconut Research Bureau. Like, <laughs> how were you treated? Like, how were you regarded as you asked all these questions? What sort of reactions did you get? It's funny. My my cousin, I was texting with my cousin who traveled with me and helped me with all this research on WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you know, I have to admit when you showed up 10 years ago and asked us to take you to talk to all these relatives, I was a little like, mm. What's, right. What is this? You know, what's this like little side project that my younger cousin is trying to embark sure. on? All right, fine. Like I'll humor her. Right. 
that was that was her thinking right, right. They, they all felt like they were just indulging me and that this was like sure. you know the way like you know your aunt or niece or whatever shows up and like i was gonna say good indians like being hospitable to a family exactly. member helping her out exactly. yeah <laughs> um but i don't think they thought it was anything too much more than like you know my sort of like glorified genealogy project or whatever um sure and sure. then being a journalist helped, I think, because when I went and made appointments with like scholars or this research station or whatever, I could write to them and say, hi, I'm an American reporter for the Wall Street Journal. I'm currently on leave from that job working on a novel um, and doing some reporting and research around it so that I was able to sort of like parlay my my sort of journalistic cred into making these this these requests. I think it would be harder if I just you know, we're writing to these people blind and saying like, hey, I'm working on a book, you know. Um, so I did definitely lean on, um, sure, lean on yeah. those credentials a little bit. Yeah, I mean, as you should, you you were actually that. I mean, so like, okay, so that takes us to like 2010, right? Like you finished at Iowa. Have you returned to the Wall Street Journal at this point? Or are you still on leave? This was my the like the last gasp of my leave before I went back. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you go back to the journal, and then what happens from that point forward? Yeah, so I went back to the journal, and I had become a little bit disillusioned with the tech industry, which is part of the reason I had left. Um, You're kidding. In, yeah, right? <laughs> I didn't get that from the book at all. I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> this will shock you. but yes. And I hadn't expected to write a book, you know, based partly on that reporting at all. Like, I was just disillusioned. I was leaving to go work on a creative project. Anyway, that disillusionment stayed. And when I came back to the Wall Street Journal, I wasn't, I stopped writing about tech. Like I started writing about like politics and government, other things. And so, but I was there full time and that made it harder to work on the novel. I would like, you know, work on it weekends. Like I, I would really, on weekends, I would wake up in the morning and my plan for that day would always be to work on the novel. And I did that for a couple of years then I left the journal and went to the New Yorker where I was working as an editor. Mm -hmm. And again, um, like I sort of continued this practice of trying to like just reserve weekends for writing. But then in 2015, we had a baby. And weekends changed. that all into disarray. <laughs> That's right. Weekends Weekends become work, right? Like weekends become, especially when your kid is yes. young, like weekends become sort of like busiest time in your life. And so I lost my weekends but it was also around that time that I transitioned to freelancing. Mm. Freelancing is really hard. You know, I was working really long hours as a freelancer, but I could choose those hours for myself. And so I was able to sort of carve, you know, if I had three big assignments in a row and then got paid for those, I could say to myself, okay, I'm now going to take Couple three weeks. weeks and just yeah. work on my fiction, yeah. you know? And so that's how I was able to make it work once, once we had a job. Oh my God. So then how did the process of taking it out to sell it go? Tell us about selling it. Let's see. Well, I should rewind and start with 2014 okay. because while I was in graduate school from 2008 to 2010, I got an agent and in 2014, I sent that agent my manuscript. I was like, I think I'm almost done. I had just gotten pregnant. I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering the timing correctly, I was pregnant and was like, I've got to sell this book before I have a baby. And so I sent this agent the manuscript and didn't hear back for a while. And then finally I got on the phone with her and she was just like, eh, I don't know. I don't know about this. And I was like, well, I'm ready to take notes. Like, let me know what it needs. Sure. And she was like, ah. And it turned out like she just wanted me, like she wanted to break up. Like she made me 
say it. I was like, do you think we shouldn't work together anymore? And she was like, yeah, I don't think we should work together anymore. So we like broke ties and she was no longer my agent. So then I ended up connecting through my, a friend of my husband, Andrew Altschulz, who Andrew, my husband is also a writer and he had a friend, Brando, the writer, Brando Skyhorse, who was represented by my dream agent, Susan Gollum. And so through Brando, I wrote to Susan and sent her the book and she also thought it needed work, but she like found something exciting and promising in it. And so she got it, she got it and was like, yes, I want to represent you. And she gave me some notes, but then it took me a really long time to actually, you know, edit the book based on those notes. And I think I sent it to her again in 2019. Mm -hmm. She gave me some more notes and then it was early 2020 that she sent it out to, to some editors. And, and that's when I, in March of 2020 is when we sold it to Norton. Ooh, so it's did it sell on the first round of submissions with that agent? It did. Yeah, it did. Hey. So, you know, it was like a long haul to get it to that point. Um, but what a testament to holding out for the right allies, yeah. you know, like when it sells on the first submission round, like you've done something right That's with right. your agent collaborator, I think. That's right. And I don't I don't think that necessarily means my original agent was like a terrible person, although I hate I do hate her for the record. Of course not. But, that, um, but like. You know, I think she and Susan read the same manuscript and maybe even responded similarly. But the first agent was like, you know what? I can't, I don't want to put the work in to help this writer get it to where it needs to yeah. be. I don't yeah. have the time. I have different priorities, whatever. Whereas Susan like saw the same manuscripts, saw probably some of the same problems, but thought it was like an exciting, interesting project, right? To like get her hands dirty with. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that, so like, I think that's a valuable piece of experience to offer up for like students who are young writers who are, you know, Stanford juniors who are looking at you and wondering how to do this. But I also think that like everything you're saying might represent some interesting changes in the publishing industry between 2009 and 2019. And like, do you ascribe and like, do you witness that or do you ascribe any of the positioning of the book to that? Yeah, well... I do. I do know that it's true that suddenly over the past, you know, three years or so, right? Suddenly, um, yeah. The publishing industry has woken up to the fact that, what is it, like 40 or so percent of people in this country are not white. um, And that there are all kinds of stories that have been told all this time, but that the gatekeepers in the publishing industry have not brought into the wider market, right? Exactly. Um, And so... I do think that we sent my book out in the sort of in the middle of that, that sort of reckoning that was taking place. Um, Mm -hmm. But also, you know, I ended up with an editor. Elaine Mason is my editor at Norton. And she was one of the founders of Words Without Borders, which is like a journal for Mm. literature and translation. So she happens to be a very globally minded Mm. editor. She's edited, you know, international writers, writers of color for her whole career, her whole long illustrious career. And so like, I do think that 
this reckoning was taking place. And then I also think like, I just, I found the right editor for my work. Yeah. Yeah. And both of those things can be true. Yeah. What was, this is a weird question, but like, I just, I know what it is to be persistent through a long project that you don't know how it's ever going to turn out. And you don't know if it's ever going to sort of come to any sort of fruition. Like, what was the darkest point in this process? Like, what was the point where you felt likeliest to walk away? If I had to pinpoint one, and there were many. <laughs> in 12 years, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I would say it was that moment when my agent, my first initial yeah. agent said, eh, I don't think there's anything here. Like, not only is this book not ready yet, but like, I don't see anything to nurture here, Right which was essentially what she was saying. I think often over the course of a project like this, you ask yourself whether it's worth all the time, whether it's going to come to anything. Of course. And I think for me, you know, people would always say like, yeah, but are you bored of the book yet? If you're not bored, like that means you need to keep working on it. And then there were times when I was like, no, but I am bored. You know, like I'm so... I'm totally fucking bored, dude. So yeah. I'm sick of this book. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't yeah. have faith in it. But I think, so I think for me, it was partly, like in some ways it was less about faith. It was less about knowing that something was going to come of it and more about just like, a kind of inherent curiosity about the work itself, about the project itself. It was like, mm -hmm. like this is mm -hmm. interesting for me to work on. They're like, there are problems that need solving that I'm kind of interested in going back to and thinking about solving. You know, like we sometimes frame this in terms of like, you just have to have faith that like the book is going to be in the world someday. And I think while I was working on it, for me, it was in some ways less about that and more about just like, an inherent interest in the project itself, knowing that maybe it was not going to ever come to anything, you know? Yes. The way like, um, you know, when you're starting a garden in the spring or something, like you never like, you're like, well, maybe I'll try to plant this this time. I don't know if this even grows in Colorado. I don't know. Let's just see. And then like, yeah, it's just like that it process shot. itself is what's like generating excitement for you more than being like, I yeah. just have faith that the zucchinis are going to work, you know? Right. I love that framing. That that to me connects really beautifully back to the book itself, because there's no way I could get to page 370 of this book and believe that what was in it for you was like capitalistic gratification, right? It's not that book, mm. right? It's a book that yeah. ends, that begins and ends on the same incredibly elliptical question of like, why are we here? And is it possible to sustain the human race? The book begins with that question. The book ends with that question. It does not answer it. It comes at it from like, let's say three different timeline angles, right? So it absolutely tracks to me that what would sustain you through a long process of writing that book wouldn't be the promise of like the zucchini on the other side. It's just that these questions are genuinely fucking engaging to you. And I think that that's such a beautiful and hopeful message to convey about books that take a long time to write, you know? That's so interesting, Laura. I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, I mean, right, like the book itself raises this big central question or a couple of big central questions and doesn't answer them. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, so to, to that extent too, right. For me as a writer and hopefully for readers too, like what was engaging and interesting was the, were the questions themselves. Right. Rather than yeah. the idea that there would be some answer at the end. Yes, totally dude. I mean, I don't know. It just comes back to Rilke's like, like the letters from the young poet, like, like you have to love the questions themselves, you know? And like, yeah. that is the project of writing. 
And it's, I don't know, it really, it really moved me. I guess I'll just say that it really moved me. And I'm also looking at this, you know, I teach at Stanford, as you know, you've spoken to my class, you've heard the like anxious young questions about anxious young writers. And part of what's interesting to me about hearing you describe the trajectory of this book and your life through this book is, I actually think it's quite comparable to other Stanford students that I see just embarking on that path. Like what you just described, what did you study at Stanford? That's another question I have. Oh, yeah. So I actually studied international relations with a focus on economics. Um, Interesting. Which would seem to have not that much to do with writing, but it does like that definitely did infuse. The I think it would have quite a bit book. to do with this book. This book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just to finish my thought, what I perceive sometimes teaching at Stanford is I see these young students who are deeply invested in writing, obviously, and also deeply invested in eating and creating sustainable career paths for themselves. Obviously, many of them do exactly what you did, which is they take sort of entry level tech reporter jobs, right? <laughs> and then because they're Stanford students, you know, they get put on the Elizabeth Holmes case or things like that. And so it's interesting to see you on the other end of that tunnel, sort of having done the reporting, having like sort of surveyed the whole landscape, form your own opinions about it, and then sort of split off on the literary path. It brings me a lot of pleasure. Pleasure, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll also say, you know, I love, I love being a writer. I love being a creative writer and a fiction writer. I love that I wrote this novel and I do, um, I do also genuinely love reporting, you know? So yeah, like I, you know, for, for those students or listeners or whatever who end up on that path and stay on that path. Right. And end up like writing investigative stories about Theranos or whatever, you know, 20 years after leaving Stanford, like that's such an exciting path to to take with your writing also. No. And I, I love the mutually inclusive framing of all of that too. And I think that that is a reality of anyone who wants to work as a creative in 2022 is like, you have to be versatile. You have to have like several different skills (laughs) and like you're a fantastic avatar for that too. Oh, well, thank you. How would you connect Stanford to all of this? You know, like you've connected the wall street journal to this, you've connected your family to this. Like what role does Stanford play in this milieu? So Stanford played a huge role. One thing we haven't talked about yet was that I, so I majored in international relations and took econ classes. And so that's where I got like some of my formative um, learning about the way that the Mm. world fits together, right? And how economics and money drive everything. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I minored in creative writing. And so like all through college, I was taking creative writing classes And I met my first creative writer friends at Stanford um, who continue to be, we still have the writing group that we started back in 2002 or 2003. Um, I have heard about this writing group for years. This is a famous writing group. (laughs) Well, thank you. I like to think of it as the famous writing group. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) But so these friends of mine who also were, were writers and like, Many of them also Asian American writers too. Um, we're all like, we were all just learning to write together and sharing work with one another. And it didn't feel like marginal or strange to be writing about the experiences mm-hmm. of Asian people, of Asian American people, right? And so I sort of came into myself as a writer in that context where like I was writing with people who were like me, both in terms of like ethnic background, but all in all so many other ways too, right? Um And so I would say like Stanford made me a writer. I was also taking classes. My first writing teacher 
was Adam Johnson, who's now on faculty at Stanford in Mm -hmm. creative writing, who at the time had just finished a Stegner fellowship. So he was like a pretty young writer himself. And he was just teaching undergrads, you know, after the Stegner fellowship, he had what's called a Jones lectureship, where it's like, you know, you're just out of this fellowship program, but you're teaching undergrads. So he was teaching one of those classes that I happened to be in and like really took me and a couple of others under his wing and just like was a great mentor, early mentor to me and like helped me feel Mm -hmm. like I was a writer. So it was really like that time at Stanford that made me feel like a writer. That's amazing. How did that evolve when you got to Iowa? You know, like if you felt reified as a writer at Stanford, like what did Iowa then do? Yeah, so you're right. Like I did, you know, people talk about like imposter syndrome and coming into these spaces, especially as a woman, especially as a person of color. Sure. And I have to say like having grown up as a writer, in a context where like being Asian American wasn't strange, being a female writer wasn't strange. Like I I just like got that out of my, out of the way really early and like totally felt that's the right word, like felt reified as a writer pretty early. So when I, you know, when I got that call, that acceptance call into Iowa, I was psyched. Like I was so excited, Um, but I didn't have the sense of like, do I belong there? Is it okay for me? Am I going to fit in? That's powerful. And also as it happens, two people from that college undergrad writing group were actually at Iowa already. So they were, I thought of that. Yes. The writers, Jenny Zhang and Anna North were already at Iowa, two of my best friends. And so I was able to call them and be like, Hey, I got in here. I think I'm going to come, you know? And then I got there and I had this built in friend group, which speaks to, you know, I'm talking about the sort of like marginalized experiences of like being a woman, being a person of color, but I also had the great privilege of having gone to Stanford. Right. And sort of like meeting these people who were then going to, you know, be going to the Iowa Writers Workshop, you know, having jobs at places like the Wall Street Journal and the New Yorker. And so like, I really benefited from that network also. That's amazing and really powerful and totally tracks for me because routinely my classes are like majority Asian American women at Stanford, which is like a really beautiful Mm, feature of Stanford that I think doesn't get all the attention sometimes. Um, And so it's interesting to hear how it's sort of played out in the medium to long term for you. That's really beautiful. What are you working on now? Like, how is it to, like, go on to the next thing after you pour 12 years of yourself and the previous three generations of your family into this book? Like, what's next? It's really strange. It's funny, you know, having because this was my I think this is not an uncommon feeling, but I hadn't felt it before because it's my first book. Like when I published the book and it came out into the world, it almost felt like like a little death or something, you know, like this book that was so alive, such a big part of my life was like now this sort of static thing on shelves that wasn't mine anymore, you know? Um, So there is a kind of grief that comes along with that. My next book is a story collection that I've also been working on for a really long time, sort of alongside the novel. And it's nice to have this other project to sort of now pour myself into now that I'm done with with the novel. It comes out next year and it's called This Is Salvaged. um, And it's a collection of stories. And um, I just got the edits from my editor a couple of months ago. And so I'm sort of working through that now. And and it feels really satisfying to get to have this next thing. Ooh, that is such a concrete answer. Oh my God. I feel like a lot of people ask that question to be like, I am trying to piece together the pieces of my brain, going through some old sketches and notes, panickingly trying to figure out what's next. You have a plan. Of course you do. Well, the nice thing about, you know, writing for 20 years and not publishing (laughs) is that you have this big body of material (laughs) that can then start to make its way into the world. Well, you've done such interesting freelance work in the recent past, too. I'm thinking about your piece Ghosts in the Believer, which I would also love to talk about because 
it's been such a hit when I've taught it to students. Um, the Stanford kids love this piece. Can you talk a little bit about the process of collaborating with AI to like write prose? Yeah. So I had written as a journalist, I had written a profile of this guy named Sam Altman who runs this AI lab called OpenAI that made this this algorithm called GPT-3 that's like an AI writer, you know, like you feed it mm -hmm. some text and it tells you what comes mm -hmm. next. So I found it really interesting. And that was the starting point for this project. Like I just was like, oh, this technology is interesting. I wonder how it works. And so I got permission to like go and play around with it. And at first I was just like, I was truly just playing around. Like I was trying to write some fiction with it. I was plugging in, you know, like bits of published work, like the beginning of Moby Dick or whatever, and seeing what it came up with. And it occurred to me that like the thing that it was doing was offering me language where I was sort of like grasping for language and didn't know what words I should put on the page. Right. And so then I started to think about like the thing that has been hardest for me to write about non-fictionally, which is the death of my sister and my grief over that death. And so partly, you know, because I thought it might become something, but mostly just for myself, you know, I started playing around with like giving it a little bit of writing a little bit mm -hmm. about the loss of my sister and seeing what it would come up with. And then just like iterating to use a Stanford-y term, right? Like trying over and over to like give it a little more and see what I got back. And it was really like a surprisingly moving experience for yeah. me to like get to like have help articulating something that I had a hard time articulating wow. myself, you know? Um, and it feels like on the face of it, it's like this machine, right? But the way the machine works, the way the algorithm works is that it's using sort of this whole body of existing human mm -hmm. language mm -hmm. and human writings to learn how people write. And so in a sense, it was like, I was communing with this machine, but in a sense, I was just like communing with everybody, you know, with like all the other people who had tried to write something about grief, about loss. Man, it's an interesting way of like connecting your brain to the internet in a way. <laughs> it feels pretty related yeah, to no, the central concerns totally. of the immortal King Rao. I guess... So, like, the last question I have, I would get farther into the book, but, like, it was so delicious to unravel piece by piece that I'm, like, a little wary of, like, spoiling it too hard is why I'm not asking, like, act three questions. But I'm really curious, after such a perseverant process of, like, sticking to this and seeing it through, like, what's come back, you know, as this book has been in the world for two months, like, as you've offered this gift to the world, what has flowed back to you in return and what's been most surprising or moving about it? I have started to get notes from readers, whether those are like friends or people I know or strangers mm. who have, you know, like enjoyed the book or found it moving or found it meaningful to them. One thing that's really gratifying is that like in every conversation I've had or email exchange, somebody notices something that like, I wasn't sure if anybody would get, you know? Uh, mm, so it like really mm -hmm, feels like there's mm -hmm. a connection between me and the reader. And then also people have these insights that like hadn't occurred to me where like, they're just sort of coming up with it in their own reading of the book. And I hadn't meant to put it there, you know? And I find that sort of equally satisfying. Sure. My parents have both read the book and I I've talked a lot about like my dad's role in the book because it directly comes from his family. But my mom, more than my dad, would like tell me family stories growing up about her own family. Oh, so like yes. she's in the book, like sh her, those stories are in the book a lot too. And so like having had them both, both of my parents read the book and like 
be moved by it and find that it reflected something of their own experience was really gratifying too. It's a process of immortalizing their legacy too. You know, like that's really beautiful. That's powerful. Is there anything else that you want to say about this book? Like, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you think is like essential to get to? I don't think so. This is, this has been a really thoughtful conversation. I loved your questions. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh my God. I loved the book. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.